Okay, that's pretty good. All right. I always get nervous whenever you say something like that. When I chuckle a little bit before I actually say what it is. Mm-hmm. Don't worry, I've started to figure out my own tells. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a long journey. <laughs> Hello, welcome to Tencent Takes, the podcast where we are brainwashed into fighting to the death, one issue at a time. My name is Jessica Frazier, and I'm joined by my co-host, the glimmering gentleman, Mike Thompson. I don't know what sound effect to make for that. I don't know. You can't make that, like, sparkle noise? <laughs> Why can't you make that sparkle noise on command? I know, right? That sound that isn't made with human vocal cords. <laughs> Hello. Well, how are you doing, friend? I'm good. Um, it's really hot as we are recording this, but so hot. I have been organizing the giant pile of comics that I had sitting in the garage for a year. So it's been yes. a productive day. I'm very happy. It's now just boxes as opposed to piles on top of the boxes. Yes. And it looks really good. I got a little, I got to go hang out with Mike and Sarah the other day for a little bit. He showed me a tour of the new home, which I was very excited about, but also his little comic setup. I can't believe it took us that long to get you. I know, it's okay. Stuff comes up, you know, we're still in a panini. <laughs> yeah. What are you going to do? <laughs> so. <laughs> well. The purpose of this podcast is to celebrate comic books in ways that are both fun and informative. We want to look at their coolest, weirdest, and silliest moments, as well as examine how they're woven into the larger fabric of pop culture and history. And if you're enjoying the show so far and want to help us grow, it would be a huge help if you would rate and or review us on Apple Podcasts, because that really helps with discoverability. And in fact... While we're on that topic, Mike, did you know <laughs> that we're getting incredibly close to 10,000 downloads? I had an inkling because you and I may <laughs> obsessively check our downloads almost every day. <laughs> we do obsessively check our downloads. I'm not going to lie to you. So if you want to make us really happy, like go on there and download a bunch of stuff <laughs> because nope. Mike and I always go, ooh. <laughs> that being said... We are going to be doing a giveaway. Yeah, Mike, man. take it away. Do you want to give us some deets? Yeah. So as I am going through the piles of stuff, I'm setting aside books for two different bundles. We are going to have a bundle of 90s gimmick covers, and then we are also going to have a bundle of legit cool dollar bin discovery comics. So all you have to do is leave us a review on whatever platform you are listening on if they have a review feature. And then send us a screenshot. And anyone who has left us a review in the past is also eligible. Just grab a screenshot of what you wrote about us and send it our way. We'll throw your name into the hat. And then we will do a drawing on July 31st and contact the winners. Yeah. So thanks, Mike. I appreciate you uh, giving us some prizes to send out to people. Oh, yeah. There, there might be a couple other little goodies that we send with that little bundle. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> This week, we are going to be delving into a four-issue limited series that caused superheroes and fairy tales to collide. Marvel's Beauty and the Beast, featuring Dazzler and X-Men's Beast. But before we take that emotional plunge, Mike, what is one cool thing you've read or watched recently? Hmm. I recently read Neverlanders. It was written by Tom Taylor. And I apologize because a lot of these are names that I am not familiar with. And so if I mispronounce them, I am deeply sorry. But it was yeah. colored by Mississic, Veneta Variac, and Jean-Francois Bulow. Art was by John Samariva. It was lettered by Wolfgame Bilsma and edited by Christopher Hernandez. I picked up the graphic novel at Flying Colors when we were both at the Liam Sharp signing. And I gave it to my stepkids. Both of them loved it, and I finally got around to checking it out, and I also loved it. Nice. Yeah. It's a modern-day Peter Pan story. It follows oh. B, who is a runaway of color, and her chosen family of other runaways. 
they meet a new kid named Paco when he ends up saving B's life in the subway. And it turns out Paco is a lost boy and he brings the group to Neverland, which is like very different than the version that we grew up on. Okay. Peter Pan is gone. Tinkerbell is now leading an army of fairies and has like the filthiest potty mouth you've ever seen. Yes. (laughs) It's very good. She and her army are barely fending off an invasion of pirates and airships. The pirates are trying to steal the land's magic. And B's group are the final hope to save the place. The comic is wonderful. Like, I can't think of another word for it. Taylor is, honestly, he's one of those writers who could teach a master class on storytelling. And this book is no exception. He's taken a lot of established concepts and twisted them in a way that it all feels pretty fresh. The cast is super diverse. And Samariva's artwork is just very polished. Like the overall style is kind of kind of a fantasy cyberpunk. I don't quite know how else to describe it. But it's also really bright and colorful. And I can't say enough good things about this. It's really fun too. So basically, if you like good stories and cool art, check this out. Very cool. Well, that was very appropriate to our theme this week as well. Kind of. Bringing in, bringing in a fairy tale. Yeah. What about you? Well, I went to see Across the Spider-Verse in theaters. Mm. Oh, my freaking God. (laughs) It was so good. (laughs) I took my stepson to see that a couple of weeks ago, and it was really good. I honestly think I'm going to go see it again at some point. Yeah. It was really, really good. It's one of those movies that I keep thinking about. Yes. Yes, there were so many funny things. And I'm not going to do any spoilers because I hate spoilers. There were so many funny parts, though. Oh, my God. Yeah. And I'm going to talk to you about a couple of things offline just because there were a couple of things I thought were very, very funny. And I don't want to give away. But <laughs> it was it was just such a cool experience seeing it on the big screen. This is one of those movies I'm really glad. And I saw it on the even bigger screen, like the IMAX oh, nice. one. So that's yeah. cool. Yeah. It has the reclining seats, all that jazz, like phenomenal experience. Yeah. <laughs> I, like, we we saw it at our local one because the local theater never seems to sell out. If I have my choice, I'd rather go to the one in downtown Petaluma. But the problem is, is right. we saw it opening weekend and everything was sold out. Right, right. No, I saw it since I saw it this last week and I caught it like kind of later in the evening. There really weren't that many people there. Right. And I was just like right in the middle. There was nothing blocking me. And they, the seating's really good there too. So yeah. they do a good job of not having heads and stuff in your way. Yeah. So yeah, guys, this was seriously worth the watch. There, I will warn you though, there are a few like flashing sequences, which mm-hmm. may mess with some viewers who are sensitive, just as a heads up. But the colors and the animation style choices were so neat. And it was genuinely a good time. And, like, honestly, at the end of it, I just wanted to see more. Which I think is the mark of a good film. Yeah. It also does a really good job of giving the viewers information about the storyline in case they weren't privy to the other canon events prior to this film. So I think it was even good for viewers who maybe aren't caught up with all of the characters that are pictured. Yeah. It's funny because my stepson and his friend came with us to the movie and they were both really grumpy about the fact that, you know, it ends on a cliffhanger. Right. Which, I mean, like, I'm not spoiling anything. Everybody knew that that was coming. But (laughs) my friend and I were there with them and they were like griping about that. And then my friend was sitting there and he was like, have you never read a comic series as it's coming out? <laughs> Seriously, that's the whole yeah, that's the whole jam. You I, have to wait. I think they may not have because my stepson he only reads graphic novels. He doesn't read singles. So I was like, oh, oh I was like, well, right. you're in for a rough awakening, my friend. Whew. Man, welcome to our world. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the inability to binge. I think that's uh really changed. So yeah, I I suggest everyone go see it if you can. You will not regret it. Or watch it when it comes out, whatever. Either way, see it. It was really good. (laughs) All right. Well, Mike, are you ready to shimmer into our main topic? Not really. Like, this was, man, like, I was not a fan of this. Like, (laughs) look at this. We're already starting off with the opinions. I don't know, man. It's late at night. 
it can is we just late. cut right to brain wrinkles and be done <laughs> oh my god we say this so often it's a wonder i know so today we're going to be talking about marvel's 1984 to 1985 four-issue limited series, Beauty and the Beast, starring Alison Blair, or Dazzler, and X-Men's Beast, Dr. Hank McCoy. So before we get into the content, however, let's talk about the reason we're doing this series. So short answer is that I found this entire set, as well as an additional copy of numbers two through four, at that amazing sale that happened to be over a year ago now Mm. at Outer Plains in Santa Rosa. So Mike was able to get all of them except for the first one from me, which was cool. I like to be able to find things that we can both read. Yeah, it's also available on Marvel Unlimited. That's how I read it originally. Perfect. There we go. Yeah. And God, again, seriously, I feel like I'm never going to get through all of the content that I bought during that sale. So you'll be hearing about this in our future episodes. So you're making a (laughs) dent on that content. So I'm sure trying, but let's be honest, I bought four boxes of content while I was there. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. Like <laughs> Yep. All like whole boxes. Sometimes too many to fit in a box. The one that I really remember is that you and I basically we would go with other people and they'd be like, "All right, like I'm kind of bored." And we yep. we would like get grumpy cuz we were there for an hour and we were just like, "Okay, fine. I guess we can go do other stuff." And then you and I went one time and we spent like two or three hours just. We were there for such a long time. <laughs> just like pawing through all the comics. And we came up with like, I want to say we had like a box and a half each. It was wild. Yeah. That was that was the time I had to actually pull my car up. Yeah. <laughs> that was good. Yeah. I had to sit in like a loading zone, which was not actually a loading zone <laughs> with my flashing lights on and just pray. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, So this series caught my eye for several reasons. Firstly, I love X-Men. Generally really like the Beast as a character. I didn't realize at the time that this was Dazzler who was featured with him, but I was super stoked to find out that it was after I picked this topic, because I'd actually been wanting to do an episode on her anyway, so this will be a good intro into her character before we do another deep dive coming up here soon. I didn't realize it was Dazzler either. Yeah. <laughs> so here's the thing is one of the covers features her in like this red outfit. I thought it was the Scarlet Witch and I had come across this book several times at Brian's and I was like, oh, whatever. It's the Scarlet yeah. Witch. I don't care. And I just kept it moving. No, it's fucking Dazzler. <laughs> yep. So yeah, I will be doing a deep dive on Dazzler. I'm here for it. Not next deep dive. Yeah. But the one after that. So in a few weeks, in like a month and a half, you guys will see another Dazzler episode from us. Yeah. The other reason that this spoke to me is because of my connection and, well, more than slight obsession with Beauty and the Beast as a story. I have read dozens of different iterations of the story and was absolutely obsessed with the Disney animated film as a kid. In fact, that film impacted my life in a very, very real way because as a kid seeing that film, I was, again, I was obsessed. And I was obsessed with the idea of being able to speak the other language featured in the film, which is French. And as a child, when that movie came out in the 90s, I vowed that I was going to learn the language that the oh, characters really cool. from one of my favorite films spoke. Fast forward to today, I have a bachelor's in the French language, I'm bilingual. And I even had the opportunity to live in France for about a year before I finished my degree. So let's just say that if something is tagged with Beauty and the Beast, I am likely to be tempted to consume it. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So and as problematic as the as the whole concept is, I get it. Like, I get it. But it's <laughs> it really did like it was a catalyst for other things in the future. I'm a very motivated individual, let's just say. <laughs> I wasn't really able to find a lot of information about the series, like the background of the series, other than publication and like synopsis information. But this is right smack in the middle of the timeline when many of the other Marvel limited series were published, including Spellbinder, which we covered in episode 57 back in April, 
Firestar, which was published in 1986, which we covered back in episode 49 in December of last year, along with The Gargoyle, which was published in 1985, which we discussed episode 45 last November. And that's just to name a few. And I actually really like these Marvel Mini and Limited series. So you're sure to get more of these for me in the future also, for better or worse, because some of these are definitely superior to others. Yeah. Yeah. I came across a note in Wikipedia on one of the pages that I was looking at, because I was like trying to get a little background on this too. Right. I don't know that much about Dazzler's background at this point of her existence. So right. I was just trying to get it. Apparently, they did this series as part of a an effort to recapture some of the female readership that had been dropping off for a while. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I know that they were doing that with a couple of series, and it was like right around the same time, like you said, with all of these other series that seemed to have more, you know, in quotes, strong female characters, but how strong they actually were is up for debate. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, since we're kind of short on extra info about the series, we're going to take a look at the characters just a little bit and where we may have seen them in the past. So... As I mentioned, the series follows Hank McCoy, Beast, who is a part of the X-Men and Defenders. And we've talked about him in the past episodes, most notably when we discussed the Star Trek and X-Men crossover comics and novel, which we talked about with Friends of the Pod, SJW Comic Book Club. Yeah, so that was So that was a good time. Yeah. He was like really popular like, at this time in Marvel because I think he was also in the Avengers Oh, yeah, I think so, too. And he was in X Factor. Like, he was kind of yeah. everywhere. I remember reading a bunch of stories where he would just show up as the guest. And I'm like, who is this chuckle fuck? Like, <laughs> all right. <laughs> I kind of felt that way the first couple times we ran into him in, like, yeah. the miniseries. I was like, why the fuck is Beast here? Like, especially when we did the crossover, I was like, mm-hmm. what? Why? <laughs> yeah. But, I, but he grew on me, honestly. He did grow on me. So Dazzler is a somewhat new character to me, but I, again, I had been interested in covering her and had found the first couple of her self-titled comics in the dollar bin at that same sale. So I was pretty primed already to talk about her. This has also sparked me wanting to do a deep dive. So I'm not going to go super, super far into her character because we're going to get into that when I do that deep dive in a few weeks. But I did want to mention that this takes place after Dazzler the movie, if you're familiar with Dazzler in general. Um, And that's going to hold relevance later in our story. As I mentioned before, Beauty and the Beast is a four-issue limited series published every other month by Marvel from December 1984 to June 1985. The story was by Anne Nocenti, penciled by Don Perlin, inked by Kim DeMulder, lettered by Joe Rosen. Colors were by George Russo's for issue number one, and then was handed to Petra Scotese for issues two through four. Michael Higgins was editor, and Jimmy Shoots was our (laughs) EIC. Issue number one was published in December of 1984, and it's just titled Beauty and the Beast Part One. This issue starts off with Dr. Doom being incredibly mopey and monologuing in his Chamber of Secrets, which looks a lot like Ariel's Cavern of Tchotchkes, if we're being It so does. It so does. There's some line about how this is like his inner sanctum and only like the most trusted can come visit the art that moves him. I'm like, oh, he's literally the only one allowed in that room. Yeah. He is such a basic bitch. He's so basic. (laughs) He basically, our our first sequence is him going, look at this stuff. Isn't it neat? Isn't it neat? (laughs) I was like, oh, no, Dr. Doom. (laughs) So the reader is reminded that Dr. Doom is the dictator of Latveria, a small Balkan country, and would-be conqueror of the world. (laughs) (laughs) He waxes poetic about his hated enemies, the Fantastic Four, until he is interrupted by one of his henchmen who informs him that they have received a transmission from dun-dun-dun, his son, gasp. Dr. Doom is pissed off at A being interrupted and B being reminded of his offspring. <laughs> like he's <laughs> very grumpy salty. About it. So grumpy. Then we get backstory about Dr. Doom finding out about his son after years of being away only to not accept him as his own all because of his personal narrative that he needed to be alone yeah. to be the villain he needed to be. So fucking roundabout and stupid. Not logical at all. It's so emo. 
Dr. Doom and the audience are able to find out Dr. Doom's son is an adult at this point and he's in California. Meanwhile, Beast is bouncing into Hollywood, hoping to be discovered, but finding pretty quickly that people are not ready or willing to accept a mutant in the streets, let alone on the silver screen. This becomes even more apparent when Beast comes across a decrepit abandoned theater advertising Dazzler the movie. However, there was some incredibly negative and hateful graffiti drawn all over the ad at the singer's image, at which point Beast starts to get the idea that he may not be as welcome there as he had once thought, and marveling that people could be so hateful towards someone so beautiful. Yeah, and the backstory for this is that at some point, like I think towards the end of her series or with the movie special, she had come out as a mutant in response to like the public sentiment, and it backfired. So suddenly- she went from being a star to kind of getting just dropped by everybody. Exactly. Yeah. So that evening, Dazzler is attending an upper crust party, wearing an absolutely stunning pink fitted strapless evening gown, plunging back, matching choker and earrings. Phenomenal. She's recognized pretty quickly by this handsome, if not a little slimy, James Bond type in a tux named Alex. Yeah. I will say right now, do not ever trust anyone named Alex. (laughs) Speaking from personal experience? Personal experience alone. I don't think I ever... mm, Nope. I've never dated an Alex. There you go. My brother's name is Alex. (laughs) 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 so he convinces her to go for an audition for an opportunity he promised would be quote-unquote safe even though she is leery due to the social climate regarding mutants when she gets there the next day she's sent through a suspiciously quick audition and she is asked to sign a very long contract which she doesn't seem to stop very long to read no she never does it's just like just sign here and here and here We then see a progression of Alex pushing Dazzler's boundaries, plying her with alcohol and pushing her into a pool for publicity. And it all culminates in a bad review of her in the newspaper talking about how she's basically a party girl and she loses her shit, Mm -hmm. pushing her to go to the theater that Alex had been pressuring her to act for, run by a man named Hugo. And this is the point when Dazzler and Beast collide, as Beast is invited to what amounts to the set of a mutant theater. And Dazzler's there, and she has realized that she doesn't really have control of her powers at this point for some reason. Yeah, like lights leaking out of her hands, I think. Right. It was pretty bad. And Beast is getting into an altercation with another of the mutant actors, Rocker. Oh, and fun fact, they're fighting over who gets to pick her up. It's so dumb. Yeah. So the big shot Hugo shows up, and we get a shot of him paying off Rocker for a previous quote-unquote job he took care of and hugo also makes a jab at beast calling the duo beauty and the beast hugo meanwhile is telling dazzler how lucky she is that she's working for him after the spectacle she'd made of herself basically and even though all the shit was set up and saying that they have a symbiotic relationship mm-hmm. it was so gross but dazzler runs off <laughs> she got the ick and Hugo sends a goon after her, stating that she was valuable property. And she runs off and light shining off of her like she's the fucking sun and goes to hide so nobody can see her, which good luck. I'm really curious when you started reading this and you got to this point, were you getting the vibe this dude was going to eventually like have her doing adult films? I wasn't sure what was happening, but I knew it was going to be bad news. I I knew it was going to be some... Yeah, it definitely it did. It did have that vibe. I definitely was yeah. like thinking in that direction when I first got to it. Like, yeah, folks, let's just say if that's where you think this is going, there will be a flip here soon. <laughs> <laughs> there shall be a twist. So the next day, Beast sees a newspaper article stating that Dazzler disappeared and Beast starts waxing poetic about because everybody fucking <sighs> wax poetic in this fucking thing about how he can't get her out of his head and decides to insert himself in the situation and goes to rockers to try to find out more info about her 
And he catches Rocker in a robe. In, and Rocker, by the way, is this like horse face dude. Yeah, and he's got like with, hooves. like horse hooves, yeah. So he catches Rocker in a robe, enjoying his statue collection. It's also very trinket-like cave yeah, it's very weird, feeling. Yeah. Which is a bunch of horses and centaurs. <laughs> and Beast starts beef with him, and they just start fighting. Like, they're yeah. breaking Rocker's precious statues. And elsewhere, Dazzler is not doing well. She is almost entirely light. It's consuming her. But a group of people find her and bring her in to help her. So back at Rockers, Beast is getting the better of Rocker and forces him to call Hugo to get a status update on their search, which results in an address of where they think that she is. So Beast threatens Rocker not to follow him and starts to make his way to the given address. He busts past the inhabitants of the house and finds Dazzler as bright as ever and lets her know that he's there and vows to take care of her. Yeah, like Beast is exhibiting a lot of like toxic alpha male bro vibes yes Yes. yeah he would be the first guy to be like i want to take care of you he's a nice guy that she wasn't like doing enough because you know (laughs) yeah no so stupid i hate it yeah you know at one point he like shows up at a trilby he doesn't actually but he should have oh yeah 100 percent 100 percent issue number two this was published in February of 1985. It was titled Heartbreak Hotel, and we pick up right where we left off, with Dazzler at the house where she was taking refuge, and with Beast watching over her. And she's trying to hide herself out of embarrassment, and it's super clear that she's uncomfortable with him being there, but he's still fucking there. Mm-hmm. And Beast basically talks her into confiding in him. Coercion much? And... We, the reader, get a recap about the previous issue while she's picking the eyeball out of a stuffed bear for some reason. Yeah, that was like a weird thing. I didn't quite understand that. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't get that either. I don't know. She's needed to do something with her hands or something. So we find out about the house where they ended up. It's deemed the Heartbreak Hotel. It's run by a woman named Kate and set up specifically to act as a sort of home for wayward individuals. I think they're all mutants, right? Like, they are mutants, yeah. yeah. So we also find out that one of the other occupants, Mickey, also called Poltergeist, either has a poltergeist attached to her or she is the poltergeist. So that's fun and different. I like. Do so, we know if Mickey was... I thought Mickey was a boy, but Mickey is drawn very androgynous. Very androgynous. I wanted Mickey to be a girl because okay. I thought there was something between her and Spider-Woman, which is why she keeps dreaming of Spider-Woman. Yeah, I, I know that Mickey, so because the character's name is Poltergeist, I know that they appeared in the Spider-Woman series. I don't know specifically what happened, but they keep on bringing up how Mickey thinks Spider-Woman is dead when she's really not. Yeah, right. Yeah. So... We then get a montage about (laughs) Beast and Dazzler spending more and more time together and growing closer. Dr. Doom shows up one page, you know, looking at sheep and shepherds in his land, because that's kind of what's there. Yeah. When one of his henchmen gives him this poor henchman, it's the same guy every time, gives him a message about his son. It is. I think it's his butler. Yeah. Uh, About his son who had been seen with Dazzler. Wow. So Dr. Doom basically screams about, he has no son because, you know, narcissism. It's so dumb. It's so so dumb. So back at Heartbreak Hotel, one of Hugo's huge henchmen are there to collect Dazzler. Beast fights him, but Dazzler ultimately ends the fight. Alex is also there, and Dazzler changes her demeanor when she sees him, almost like she's under some sort of a spell. And tells Beast that she needs to go to the theater. So back at the theater, it turns out that the performance is more along the lines of a gladiator fight yeah. than an actual like play or acting. <laughs> so she gets out there and she starts singing. She's doing her, you know, she's doing her thug fizzle. But she's booed with the crowd yelling that she should be fighting. So she does. And the cheer she receives when she's gaining the upper hand on her opponent drives her to want more of the crowd's approval. 
she almost like gets power hungry from it. Well, and the other thing is that because she her whole power set is like changing audio into light. Right. It makes her attacks more powerful and stuff, too. Oh, there you go. So she comes close to killing the other opponent and sees what she's doing and she's horrified. But the rest of the mutants crowd in, not wanting to lose their audience. Beast busts in and starts fighting people. And Dazzler confronts Alex, who turns the narrative around on her. Classic douche style. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's doing all of the classic narcissism. Like, he's, like, gaslighting her. He's like It's, like, all the things. So... Dazzler's not doing super hot with the info. She's rightfully upset at the fact that they're running a mutant gladiator fighting ring. And the other actors try to convince her that it was an accident that things got so out of hand. And Alex gives her something else to drink with the reader actually getting to view Rocker putting something in her drink, like some pills. Yeah, it's like, (laughs) yeah, I saw that and I was like, ooh, that's, hmm. that's dubious. Yeah, so Beast busts in the room because ain't nothing keeping this guy out of any room he wants to be in, apparently. So she's super happy to see him, but her powers start to go wild again, and she tries to shoo him away, basically saying she needed to stay with the other weirdos because that's what she deserved. Paraphrasing. Mm -hmm. But Beast yells at her, chastising her about her choices, and then goes to cry on the stoop of the Heartbreak Hotel because... Everybody's email. Yep. So, end of issue. Issue number three was published in April of 1985 and was titled Showtime. We start off with Beast and Dazzler enjoying a day at the beach until they move from a remote part of the beach to the populated portion where people started talking about them, trying to instigate Beast into a fight, which he almost, he was almost baited into. Beast tries to talk Dazzler out of going back into the fighting pits, but she heads off anyway. And at the theater, the mutants are practicing fighting, and Dazzler is absolutely kicking butt. Hugo starts trying to boss people around, but Alex calls him a tyrant, asking Hugo who all the mutants are listening to anyway. With Hugo calling Alex a chump, threateningly. You chump. (laughs) Later, Dazzler is hanging out with Rocker and another mutant, and Rocker shows off a new scar he has from fighting with both of the mutants convincing Dazzler that they were signs of honor and were something to be desired in the theater. So Dazzler's thinking of the Beast as she fights someone wielding a legit spiked mace. Beast, meanwhile, has apparently taken up residence at the Heartbreak Hotel, physically as well as emotionally, Yeah, and is brooding, but is convinced to follow his heart by another of the inhabitants. And at the theater, Alex is making an example of one of the mutants, threatening him if he did not follow the code they had set up for fights. They don't really get into what the code is, but he broke it. Yeah. So that evening, Beast meets up with Dazzler, who's wearing an incredibly racially insensitive outfit. She's wearing like next to nothing with a Native American style headdress. It's like a buckskin bikini. Basically. Yeah. And then she's got the full like eagle feather headwear. Yeah. Beast sees that she has this big old scar going down her neck and gets hella pissed, stating that they had brainwashed her, which, fair assessment, doctor. But he takes it a little too far and grabs some red lipstick and, like, draws lines all over her face. Fucking toxic. Yeah, he sits there and he's like, well, you should have some war paint, too, if this is what you want. And I was like, dude. It was gross. Don't fucking touch people like that. Yeah, nobody in this is great. Beast leaves, and Dowser feels like she needs to stick around the theater still, and Beast then is snooping around the theater and finds, like, a lab. Yeah. Like, a laboratory, <laughs> along with a vial with just Dazzler's name on it. <laughs> like, I love how there is an entire plot element hinging on the idea that a bunch of theater kids are advanced super scientists capable of, you know, mad scientist chemistry. Nerds on nerds on nerds. Yeah. It's like, all right. <laughs> They're giving the nerds a lot of credit here. <laughs> yeah. Tell me that you've never actually hung out with theater kids without telling me. My God, seriously. This leads Beast to understand that they have been dosing her with something, of course, obviously. So back at Heartbreak Hotel, Mickey has apparently previously known Spider-Woman, like we talked about, incorrectly thinks her to be dead. And Mickey and the other residents go to save Dazzler, who is at the arena and accidentally kills someone, but just kind of goes meh about it. Yeah. 
Beast, meanwhile, has been found out in the lab, and he's bonked over the head and injected with some other sort of serum that Hugo says will bring out the Beast. Next, we see Dazzler, who is dressed in a fancy princess dress. She's the prettiest princess. And she's, for some reason, now acting in a version of Beauty and the Beast. And so Beast comes onto the scene, clearly not himself, drooling. He's looking ragey. Dazzler's confused about what he's doing there, and Beast starts trying to fight her. So we get some fighting montage where Dazzler's getting more and more amped up by the crowd. She sends him flying into a rose bush, and she's like burning the roses around him. The crowd's cheering, kill the Beast. So she's about to take action on the crowd's chance when she just like snaps out of it. She like looks into his eyes or something. (laughs) I don't know. So Hugo's pissed. And he says that this is like the climax of the show. He like comes on stage all mad. Oh, yeah. This is the climax of the show. You're blowing it. So Hugo shouts for the others to kill Dazzler and Beast. And a fight starts to break out with Dazzler throwing light zaps at people. And Alex shows up in a fucking cape. It's looking so all weird. Self-righteous. It's oh, so God, it's weird. Awful. It's, I don't know what vibe they were going for, but it's a weird look. Either. Such a weird look. So he states the fight is over. But Hugo says, not without a killing. And Alex convinces the mutants to kill Hugo, giving the crowd the blood for which they thirsted. Doesn't he basically say something along the lines of like, well, the mutant gladiators, they only follow one person and they should kill the person that they don't follow. And the idea is that he's been like manipulating them all so that they follow him. Yeah, exactly. And probably dosing all of them is the vibe. Yeah, it's mm, whatever. Yeah. We then get, you know, one more page of Dr. Doom, who's being abusive to his henchman or his butler again, who's just trying to give him information, I might add. This guy needs to find a new job. And the butler thinks about the fact that for someone who doesn't care about anyone else, he sure does care about these other two as Dr. Doom goes to find Beast and Dazzler. And he specifically says Beast and Dazzler. Yeah. So issue number four. Don't worry, everyone. This is the last one. (laughs) It was published in June 1985, and it was titled Checkmate. I like how as we go through this more, your summaries are getting shorter and shorter. Isn't it the best? Yeah. Yeah, I know. The first couple, it's like, got to do some background. Nope. You know what's happening now. Let's Let's (laughs) Let's just power through this. Through it. (laughs) Ugh. The issue starts off with Dr. Doom finding Hugo's body, but gasp! Hugo was actually a robot who was created by Dr. Doom himself. Fucking course. Of course. So Beast and Dazzler are being held prisoner, but for some reason they're chained hanging upside down. Because why not, I guess? I and just, Alex I, and the yeah, mutant... Whatever. I keep uh, on yeah, throwing up no my hands in the series. <laughs> I think it was just like so they could have her body upside down. Like, I'm yeah. 100% sure that's why. Alex and the mutant entourage roll in, and Alex is in like full villain attire at this point. He is wearing all green. He is wearing thigh high boots and a tight green bodysuit and an even longer and more wild cape. Like, here's my thing with this is that it is clearly designed by him because no costume designer in the theater would actually send out an actor looking like this. It is no, not it a good awful. look. It's so bad. <laughs> and it was like a totally different color vibe. He like did this like maroon and yellow thing with the, yeah. the when he came out with the cape before. And I was like, okay, okay. Very Gaston. And this was pre-Disney Beauty and the Beast. So Yeah, but then this outfit that he has now, it's like clearly modeled after Doctor Doom because there's like a lot of right. greens and stuff, but it's like the gold helmet. It's a lot of clashing colors that don't vibe well. Like, they don't complement each other. They just look bad together. 100%. 100. But during this, that makes a lot of sense, because during this monologue from Alex, we find that he is, in fact, the son of, gasp, Dr. Doom. Maybe. Dun, dun, dun. Like, I don't know. Meanwhile, 
Mickey and her companion Link are looking for Beast, and Link is doing damage control as Poltergeist is messing with shit on the way. They they didn't need to be in this, honestly. No. They did not need to be in this. Back at Alex's lair, he's showing the overt signs of having daddy issues. I mean, what other reason would he have to be practicing his knife throwing with a picture of his father? I'm just saying. <laughs> Rocker is starting to question things at the theater as well, stating that Alex's speeches about natural selection sound like Hitler's rhetoric. Chef's kiss. Which, yikes, what a category to be put in, my guy. Think about it. So, Dr. Doom is creeping, watching all of this go down, like, just from the shadows, because of course he is. Rocker, having had his change of heart, goes and releases Dazzler and Beast from their upside-down captivity, where they go right to the arena for some reason, inexplicably, only to find Alex with all of his mutant minions, with Alex giving the command to kill them. Mickey and Link fight their way in, and we get a montage of Dazzler and Beast kicking some mutant butt, with Rocker helping them out. Poltergeist and Link get in on the fight, and Poltergeist is actually fucking some shit up for Alex, who is none too pleased about the situation, and grabs Mickey by the throat, Link jumps in and gets really close to killing Alex while just holding back. But Alex gets up and again sticks his mutants on them for another melee. So much melee. And Dazzler shoots him up with light, knocking his ass to the ground. Dr. Doom finally jumps in, basically berating his son about his pathetic mutant army. Calls him a disgrace and leaves. And like this whole situation basically broke the spell for the others, I guess. I guess. Because... Rocker screams that they're all free, and Beast and Dazzler walk out hand in hand, and they have a heart-to-heart moment about finding each other in the world in the Heartbreak Hotel, and that is the end of this series. (laughs) Finn. (laughs) Yeah. So we're going to talk about it now. Do we have to? We have to. (laughs) All right. We have to. What did you think of Dazzler and Beast's characters in this series? Okay, so it's weird. I really like Dazzler, but I realize I haven't read much of this incarnation of the character. I really became aware of her after she joined the X-Men in the late 80s, and it felt like a pretty strong, confident character in that that wasn't this version of her that we got. Meanwhile, the Beast in this era was totally different from the one he is today, who objectively is not a good person in the current era of Marvel. He's become one of those ends justify the means authority figures these days. But back then he was like, you know, they made him this like fun loving superhero. Like he was sort of this cheese ball, almost Lothario. He's extremely gregarious at this point in Marvel's history, kind of bigger than life. But that was also masking some pretty deep insecurities. Like a big part of his character, if I remember it right, is that he was always trying to be a ladies man. And there was something deeply wounded about his personality during this time. Like he was always this guy who had a lot of self-loathing and wanted to be loved, but he couldn't seem to realize that you have to really love yourself in order for other people to love you. Yeah. I really wanted this to, I wanted them to be better. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like I like the idea of Dazzler. And I think that like you said, I think that she could be a really strong character, but she really just felt like a damsel. Yeah. She's also like, she's kind of naive throughout this whole series too. And I was yeah, not a fan I of agree. that. You had lots of red flags that she just completely missed. But also it was one of those things where I'm like, you were a good enough character to have your own long running comic series. I would not want to read one issue where it, you're this naive damsel in distress. Like, so clearly right. there was something better going on there. Yeah, no, I agree. Well, what did you think of their dynamic as a couple? <laughs> like, uh, are there any characters in the X-Men universe that you might pair with either Beast or Dazzler instead of each other? I mean, they have the chemistry of like weak old soda. It was like the flattest thing ever. Like, <laughs> like it's so fucking flat. It was funny because I was listening to an episode of If Books Could Kill with Michael Hobbs, one of his shows, and he was talking about someone else's writing style. And he was like, it's like, what's it he said? It's like where George Lucas is trying to write love dialogue in episode two of Star Wars. And it's like, I get it. You're a writer. You're writing. And that is how I (laughs) felt every time there was lovey-dovey dialogue between Beast and Dazzler. It was just... 100%. Yes. There was nothing about the relationship that felt fun or believable. Like, I... 
when I started really enjoying Dazzler as a character, she was like kind of in a relationship with Longshot. They were this sort of power couple. They overthrew Mojo. But the big thing with Dazzler is I feel like you need someone to pair her with, like who's fun and kind. I could see her with yeah. Nightcrawler, like especially if like you okay. want to show her looking beyond appearances because he's a very deep character, but he's very fun loving. Or maybe Mystique, since I know that Dazzler is considered a queer icon in comics now, but I think that could be pretty cool. Beast is harder. Honestly, I think you need someone more serious to ground him, but they have to be smart enough to keep up with him. So like maybe Moira McTaggart or maybe Val Cooper. She was kind of a supporting character who was a psychologist specializing in mutants and actually helped run a couple of government sponsored mutant teams. But she was also like kind of an antagonist because she was on the government side and the government has not always been friendly towards mutants. I think that could make for a real interesting relationship between these two characters who are together, but they're oftentimes on opposite sides of the table. Totally. But yeah, I I do not understand why people thought that these two characters would match up. I think it would be really funny if like this existed in canon, but like he also dated Jubilee. <laughs> Jubilee was a child. Stop it. Oh, well, no. If she was older, I mean. Okay. If she was older, older Jubilee, not like child Vampire mom Jubilee? If she was, yes, exactly. Exactly. All right, fair. But yeah, just because it would would be funny to see the jump. You know what I mean? Like, why are you dating the same type? Yeah, fair. (laughs) I don't know who I'd pair with Dazzler. I feel like she she's very like outgoing and gregarious and well and she's also like very competent in all the comics that I yeah. read her in now and I really like that about her but like yeah yeah basically if any character came in now and treated her like Beast did in this series she would basically just kick him to the curb she'd be like get the fuck out of here yeah oh my god I hated it Well, what were your feelings on the villains in this series? How did you feel about the father-son villain subplot? Sorry. Yeah. I fell asleep. Oh my, like, it was so boring. All the villains were so boring, but like, especially Dr. Doom and his son. So boring. Dr. Doom had no reason to be involved in this. There was no point in him being in this comic. He should be out seducing Reed Richards and Namor and trying to get them to have a threesome because he's clearly in love with both of them. But instead, he's just fucking monitoring his son via Doombot, who was also like a secondary villain, but then wasn't. Jesus Christ. Like, I honestly think setting up an exploitative mutant deathmatch would have been pretty villainous. But Flynn then was like, I'm going to go lead a mutant rebellion in Latveria. And it feels so out of left field. Like, I hated it. There was no real tie in to Doom or Latveria for most of the series. He keeps on showing up for one page at a time. And like you said, like he was ranting about the Fantastic Four. And he's like, but let me go deal with this other thing. I'm like, fuck off. Get out of here. We don't even see his son focusing much on it until the last issue. And I was originally expecting the villains to start. I don't know, like. Like, like I said, I was originally expecting the villains to be like making kind of like dubious consent adult films where they're just like, well, this is the only work you can get. Or maybe even snuff films like that could have been interesting. Right. Like, honestly, that would have been pretty horrifying. But but no, we uh, just get a vague bit of nonsense about staging gladiatorial fights as a cover for an invasion. And then we don't even get a real showdown with Doom at the end. I honestly think that we could have had several other villains who would have worked better. This came out around the same time as Longshot did, the series, which introduced us to Mojo. I don't understand why Marvel didn't try doing something with him because the Hollywood angle would have been like a perfect fit for Mojo since his whole shtick is creating television experiences that can then be broadcast across his home dimension. Like, yeah, seems like a no brainer, but whatever. (sighs) Right. Sorry, I had opinions. No, no, you're allowed to have them. Please have all of the opinions. Yeah, the only thing that I found interesting about the dynamic was the fact that they were kind of leaving you in the dark until, you know, towards the end about who the villain's son was. You know, who the, you know, who... Like, kind of, not really. They tried to do a little thing. They tried to make it sound like it was the Beast and da-da-da-da-da. And, you know, they did a whole roundabout thing. That was the only interesting thing for me. 
out of that dynamic. I don't think either of them really needed to be there, personally. Yeah. You could have had Hugo just be the villain. Oh, yeah. Like, non-robotic Hugo. Or, or fucking robotic Hugo with Doctor Doom. And no fucking son. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, the thing is that Doctor Doom has a son, I think, named Kristoff. And so I was like, oh, is this Kristoff's first appearance? Is this where they reveal him? Like, that'd be kind of interesting. No, apparently this guy is like mentioned one other time and then they just never talk about him again. So not only does Dr. Doom say I have no sons, but he has two sons, actually. Fuck that Uh, guy. It's convoluted and weird. Like, I think he like clones his mind and I don't whatever. I don't even care anymore. Dr. Doom? Do you mean Dr. Deadbeat? Yeah, pretty much. He owes like, of course, he's a deadbeat dad. He's rich. Like like, those motherfuckers never pay what they owe. That's how they stay rich. <laughs> what did you think of the plot overall? Did you think it was necessary to the canon of X-Men or the Marvel comic book universe? <laughs> no, like, not at all. Nope. There it is. <laughs> like, there it is. Nope. Next question. <laughs> That's, that was pretty much how I felt about it, too. That's why I worded it that way. <laughs> it was leading. <laughs> so what was your take on the art and how each of the characters were portrayed? It's passable. Like it's it's sort of weird because I was reading it on Marvel Unlimited and they've remastered everything so the colors really pop, but the result is that it also feels very flat at the same time. The other thing is that Dazzler feels really sexualized with a lot of her looks. Like I mean, we already talked about that Native American outfit she wears in one of her fights. Meanwhile, Beast looks like just this blue blob for most of the comic. Like there's there's one moment where he's caught in the rain and he gets this like dreamy look with his hair because it's not like spiking up anymore. It's like curled down. <laughs> and I was like, oh, are we going to get sexy Beast? I can kind of get behind this because that'd be kind of funny. And no, he is just routinely a blue blob for most of the comic. And there's also like a lot of wide flat shots like at the same kind of camera angle like it wasn't bad it just it wasn't anything to write home about it was it was kind of like the 1980s version of machine teen when we talked about that where i was like it's fine it's a five out of ten right yeah that's i mean that's how i felt about it too the only frames that i found were interesting were ones where she was having trouble controlling her light yeah that was interesting i'll give you that but but those were those were cool in the ways that they kind of shot out the rays and that kind of stuff. But other than that, you're right, especially with her costuming. I swear her skirt was always like torn up by the oh, end yeah. of it. And like when Beast finds her, she's laying on the bed seductively, like passed out. And like, yeah, there's a big like her skirts ripped again. You know, and she's got this big old slit now because action. It's very clear they're doing like the superhero romance thing. Which I get, theoretically, they wanted to get female readers back. But at the same time, you got to tell a good story. And it feels like she wasn't consenting through most of this. It's just no. what it felt like, too, though. She was just being coerced by either Alex or by Beast. Like, she didn't really have autonomy. Yeah. And I mean, Beast himself was no prize. Like, he doesn't even have the excuse of, I was getting brainwashed. He's just an asshole. Right. He's like... He's like, but I'm a doctor. Okay, my guy. <laughs> All right. Those are the legs you're standing on. We need to have a conversation. <laughs> well, do you have any final thoughts on the series? Yeah, this is the second miniseries that you have made me read starring a major member of the Defenders team. And it's the second time I found myself bored more than anything else. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> The Gargoyle is the first series that we read, and both of us were not into that. Go back and listen to that episode if you want to hear us just bitch about a comic. I mean, this was like, I don't know. Again, this is one of those series where it's like it was just it was more boring than anything else, which thankfully we don't have a lot of. Even if we don't like a comic, there's usually a lot of stuff that we can talk about and we can call out things that we liked. But this, yeah, it just it felt very forced. Like a lot of the dialogue was so ham fisted, like I said. I agree. And the plot felt so forced. And I was just like, why, why did they force someone to do this? I get it. You were getting a paycheck when you were creating this stuff, but like, come on, Anne. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's how I felt about it as well. Yeah. I was really hoping for more out of this. 
you know, based on my enthusiasm for the topic. Yeah, I'm sorry. But that's okay. It is what it is. You didn't write it. Mm. You know, I'm not even going to blame Anne all that much. No, I like this was clearly something that was like an edict from on high. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I did like her princess dress. That was a vibe. I wish it hadn't gotten torn up as much. It was also a vibe. But, yeah. Well, it sounds like that's it for our conversation about Marvel's Beauty and the Beast. How do you feel about glittering on to our brain wrinkles? Get me the fuck out of here. (laughs) Well, we have reached brain wrinkles, which is that one thing comics or comics adjacent that we just cannot get out of our heads. So, Mike, what is it for you this week? (laughs) I cannot stop thinking about the utter failure of the flash at the box office. Lol. Like I wrote about this on Twitter where I was looking at the box office results and it's been pretty wild. Like we are recording this on the movie's third weekend in theaters and it turns out it was pulled out of 1500 theaters yesterday. So the already disappointing numbers are about to get dire. And it's wild to me how there were all these different circumstances surrounding this movie to kind of like swirl and create the perfect storm of problems that brought us to this point. First and foremost, Ezra Miller. What a trash human. And their myriad controversies, which I do not have the time or energy to discuss in any real detail. No. But Warner Brothers, like, doubled down on the movie. They publicly backed Ezra. It was noted in interviews that the movie was never in danger, even with all of the legal problems and controversies, which started before they actually began filming. Yes. It was fucking gross. Like... On one hand, I'm actually glad to see this project fail. Warner Brothers has been backing a lot of the wrong people and projects since they got acquired by AT&T and then merged with Discovery. And I've got no problem seeing some of those chickens come home to roost, but it's also astounding to me because this feels like a studio just ineptly dropping the ball. And I even like saw some people who were like, arguing about how the flash isn't actually all that popular or well-known and that's why it's failing and i'm like are we just gonna pretend that they didn't just end the tv show after nine fucking seasons like right you can't exactly you can't make that argument it's just it's wild to me no bigger point yeah. it's just i've been i've been kind of cackling while i watch all this unfold yeah so that's me what about you well i ugh. so listen This is not super related to comics, but it is kind of. But the Supreme Court has been doing us real dirty recently. Fuck, man. I saw a thing today where it was saying we're all Spider-Man because these motherfuckers are the Sinister Six and it's the six conservative judges. And I was like, yep. Yeah. Yeah. We have, you know, them striking down affirmative action. We have, you know, the LGBTQ protections that certain businesses can refuse services to people who are queer. And that was based on not even a real situation, like just a situation <laughs> it's like the most wild shit. by somebody. It's like, cool. Now we're making, we're making, you know, decisions based on situations that haven't even happened in real life. That's cool. Does this mean that I can sue someone because I'm worried that they might badmouth me in the future? I think that's, a, I think that's what this Perfect. precedent is setting. Honestly. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we should all work on that premise. And honestly, like, we already know that one in 10 people is Spider-Man. Yep. So, like, do you want it to be 10 of 10 people? Like, honestly. Like, honestly. <laughs> but, yeah, no, it's it's just been really disappointing. I'm worried about people, especially in more conservative states, but... I'm also worried about the more conservative states and what they plan to do with, like, the Constitution, for example, if they Mm -hmm. can get a quorum. So, you know, it's just I feel like there are a lot of people who are really in danger, even in the more progressive states. Yeah. And like always, always not to undermine the fact that even though I do live in a progressive state, that there are a lot of people who live in conservative states who don't have the option to leave, you know, because that's a privilege to be able to get up and move. Yep. So I'm sorry I left it on kind of a sad note, but it's okay. It's been uh the last couple of weeks politically have been tough. 
I mean, all, they're always tough, but like it feels like, especially the last couple of days. Yeah, it's really disappointing. So, yep. So that's our show for this week, folks. We will catch you next week with a dollar bin discovery. Then after that, we are going to talk about another Beauty and the Beast series. Very excited about this. Based on the TV show Beauty and the Beast in 1987. That was it. Yeah. So, but by the way, I remember watching that show. I do too. It was, yeah, I'm excited to rewatch it. I am rewatching it right now. (laughs) Oh, good. So... All right, folks. Well, we will catch you for those upcoming episodes, but until then, we will see you in the stacks. Thanks for listening to Tencent Takes. Accessibility is important to us, so text transcriptions of each of our published episodes can be found on our website. This episode was hosted by Jessica Frazier and Mike Thompson, written by Jessica Frazier and edited by Mike Thompson. Our intro theme was written and performed by Jared Emerson Johnson of Bay Area Sound. Our credits and transition music is Pursuit of Life by Evan MacDonald and was purchased with a standard license from Premium Beat. Our banner graphics were designed by Sarah Frank, who's at lookmomdraws.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, ask us questions, or tell us about how we got something wrong, please head over to tencenttakes.com or shoot an email to tencenttakes at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter for now. The official podcast account is tencenttakes, all one word. Jessica is Jessica Witha, and Jessica is spelled with a K. And Mike is Van Sau, V-A-N-S-A-U. You can also find us on Instagram, Mastodon, Facebook, TikTok, and Blue Sky. A full list of our socials will be listed in the show notes. If you'd like to support us, be sure to download, rate, and review wherever you listen. Stay safe out there. And support your local comic shop. 